Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Good morning, church. How are you? Good morning. Y'all look great. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9 with me. We're going to continue through the Gospel of Mark. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you. Uh, And if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. You can take that with you when you leave today. Uh, Mark chapter 9, real quick, let me go ahead and kind of uh, tell you one thing. Next week, we're going to have a uh, business meeting. And so uh, it's going to be our quarterly business meeting, which is kind of funny because we haven't had a quarterly business meeting all year, so it's uh, our, you know, first business meeting of the year, but we got some things to talk about next Sunday. It'll be at the end of service, so if you're a guest and you come and you're like, I don't want to hear any of this, you'll be free to just slip out and uh, not have to endure, you know, church business, but you're going to have a message from your elders. You're going to have uh, deacon nominations and uh, votes for that. You're also going to hear about finances and our plans for reopening this fall. So there'll be a lot of things that we get to talk about in that. So I just want to make you aware of that because according to bylaws, I have to tell you one week in advance. So there it was right there. So uh, this morning, we're going to talk about gospel humility. And my elders, they, they encouraged me this morning as we prayed. They were like, you know what? You need to get up there and you need to tell them that when you looked in the mirror this morning, you thought there's no one better to teach on humility than you, Jeff. Like, that's a sarcastic joke, right? So uh, uh, the thing about teaching on humility is you don't want to, right? You just don't want to because it exposes everything in you that, that you know is not humble. It's going to expose all the prides that you have and, and all these different things. And so uh, I didn't want to use the illustration about me, so I paid my daughter a dollar. I still owe her the dollar to tell this story. So uh, this week, my daughter, I'm so proud of you. She got her learner's per- permit, so she's now driving. I'm a scared father, uh, but it took her two times to pass the test, and so when she came home the first time, she was crying, and she was distraught, and she was, you know, just, you know, we had to give her some chocolate, you know, like, here, girl, like, you need some chocolate, cheer you up, and, uh, and I was like, it's okay. Welcome to the family. I failed the first time. Your mom failed the first time. Your brother failed the first time, and she said, yeah, but I wanted to be better, Wow, that's a good. That's a good goal, right? That's a good goal. Gospel humility—it sneaks up on you uh, when you least expect it. I like how D.L. Moody said it. He said, "Be humble, or you'll stumble." You know, maybe you've said it this way: "You better check yourself before you wreck yourself." All right, that's more our, uh, you know, time zone right there. So, or timeline. Uh, "Be humble, or you'll stumble" is kind of the idea behind humility. Paul, he got this. As we look at the object of humility, as we look at it topically throughout the whole of Scripture, we see that, that Paul, he, he exemplified this in his life as he lived in Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he said, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, look, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. God revealed himself to me on the road to Damascus, and, and that's, a, that's a true thing that took place, but I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Not only that, he says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians 3.8. He's like, look, I don't deserve to be an apostle. And, and if you want to say, take it even further, I'm the least of the saints. Like when you look at Christians, I'm at the bottom Wrong. And he, and he also says this in 1 Timothy 1.15, 1 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So you see this pattern. He's like, look, I don't deserve to be called an apostle. Look, if you want to look at Christians, I'm at the bottom rung. And if you look at sinners, if you want to start doing some comparison, I'm the worst. This idea of humility uh, is seen in those who live out the character of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ enters our life and he begins to live in and through us because we can't do it on our own, we begin to see gospel humility take place. So as we jump into scripture, I want to tell you this, Jesus exemplifies gospel humility. So let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do come to you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it's sharper than a double-edged sword and that pierces straight to our heart, God, today for myself. I pray, God, that you convict me. Convict me of pride that, that I know is there. God, as we listen to your word, that you would just, by the presence of your spirit, speak to us. Show us where we're not submitting ourselves to you. And God, that we would have your character live in and through us. That's our cry. That's our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus exemplifies the gospel of humility. So picking up verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So he's kind of pulled away from the large crowds. He's teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So you got Jesus again predicting his death, and he's predicting it in such a way that he's saying, I'm going to be delivered over. And I'm going to rise on the third day. But they just still did not get it. This word delivered there, you, you might have a different version that says betrayed. It's a very important word. It means to deliver up one to custody, to be judged, condemned, punished, scorched, tormented, put to death. I mean, these are all the things that we know take place when Jesus is handed over or delivered into the hands of the Romans. It's really a technical word that uses the criminal. It says the criminal is being handed over for judgment and punishment and perhaps execution. And it's a legal term. So we get this idea that there's going to be a legal transaction that takes place when Jesus offers up his body for us. Paul talks about this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's saying, look, you thought that, that God was uh, not in control, but he's in complete control. This was his plan, his foreknowledge from the very beginning to deliver over his son Jesus for a legal transaction. Romans eight thirty two, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's this delivering that takes place. And let me tell you, it's the delivering of God handing over his son for a legal action of taking our place on the cross. Paul says this in Colossians when he talks about the sovereignty of God. And he says this in 2, 19, 9 through 14. For in him is the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, 
who were dead in your trespasses in the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Let me tell you something. There was a legal demand that took place, and there was a legal action that took place as Jesus was delivered over to die in our place. Our sins were then put on him as he hung on the cross, and we are now set free from that bondage of slavery. There's a really great picture in here of baptism. And this morning, there's several of you here because we have some uh, members of ours that are coming for baptism. And you're going to get to see that picture at the end of service, that it is a, I am dying to myself. I am dead with Christ. I am fully immersed, and I am risen to newness of life. Christ now lives in me. He has canceled the record of sin and death. Isn't that amazing? Yes, I can tell. You're so blown away. Your faces are like, ah. This is why Jesus said this in John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be a deliverance of me over. A legal action is going to take place, and I want you to know that I am complete control. Here's why we gather here today, because we serve a God who came in the flesh and said, I willingly go and I suffer and I die in your place so that you can have everlasting life. That's why we're here. That's why we're social distancing as best we can in, in, a, in a building, because we believe that Jesus Christ is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, and we gather together as his church to sing his praises, to be reminded of his word and the work that he's done. He exemplifies gospel humility in his action and his attitude. What's remarkable about this is that, you know, we can have some humble action, but Jesus calls us not, just, not to just act, but to have an attitude of humility. This is the same thing he exemplifies. Therefore, his instruction to his disciples and all followers of Christ is to allow the example of Christ to live through our lives in action and attitude. He calls us to surrender our lives to him so that he can live in and through us. It's his character that takes place. And this is why Paul would say in Philippians 2, 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. Nothing. Not even good works, right? If you're going to do nothing, then nothing means that I'm going to do it from uh, selfish ambition or conceit. So good works in the name of Christ can actually be tainted when they, are not exemplif they don't exemplify the humility of Christ. There can be actions that we do, that we, that we serve. We say, hey, I'm going to do this because I'm going to do the action of humbling myself. But if the attitude of humbling myself does not go along with it, then it may not be the attitude of Christ that's leading you to do it. It might be something in yourself that you say, you know what, I'm going to do this because this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to show myself to be humble. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Dr. Danny Aiken, he says this, sometimes we need to take a painful pride test as a disciple of Christ. And I'm just going to tell you, uh, there was other questions on here, but I, I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you the ones that got me. 
Because I'm just going to open myself up here and say, hey, here's where I struggle. Am I upset if I'm not praised for my work? Man, I am a words of affirmation type of person. Anybody else with me? You need some words of affirmation? I need to be told, hey, good job. Don't, now, don't do that at the end of service because I'll be like, I'm reading right into what you're saying. because it was, you know. So, I'm a words of affirmation person. I value. I'm, my wife, bless her heart, she's long-suffering because I have to be like, tell me how good I am. Please tell me. Tell me you love me. Tell me how wonderful I am. Yeah, don't shake your head too hot. No, okay. So this is me. I'm so upset when I don't get praise for the work that I do. That's pride. It's a painful pride test. Do I seek credit for what others have done? Absolutely. All my best jokes come from my wife. And I don't give her credit for any of them, right? Because I want you to be like, oh, that guy, that guy. <laughs> I, this is me, painful pride test. Do honorary titles pump me up? Oh, yeah. I earned that. I deserve for you to call me that. Is popularity crucial for my sense of self-worth? And I'm just going to be, this is not in my notes, okay? So this is like a therapy session. I should have like a couch to just lay down and start talking to you. When COVID-19 hit and, and I was preaching to an empty room, it was, it was hard because I got no affirmation from it. And I know it was pride. I know it was pride. The painful pride test shows us that there are things in us that we do. We serve God, but sometimes we do it from a prideful motive rather than a Christ motive. And that is when God says, look, I want you to have the same mindset of Christ. He exemplified this in in putting on flesh and coming and dying in your place. And now that he wants to live in and through you, you have action with attitude. I like how Andrew Murray puts it. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. When, when I realize that there's pride in my life, I realize that I am putting myself back on the throne of my heart and that I have taken Christ out of the throne, taken him off the throne. So many times we need to be reminded that it's not just the actions of humility that God calls us to do, it's the attitude of humility he wants to produce in us. The second thing he does, he doesn't just exemplify it, but he also teaches. He takes a moment to teach biblical humility. Let's keep reading verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is going to give this object lesson of humility because of the pride that has risen up in the lives of the disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest. I like how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than, it, than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. So you've got these guys. They're in there. They're arguing. They're walking along the way, and they're saying, you know what? I'm the best. No, I'm better than you are. You know, Peter might have been like, you know what, guys? He gave me a wrestler nickname. I'm the rock. Okay, like you can't beat the rock. 
And then, you know, James and John's are like, well, we're sons of thunder. We're kind of like a tag team match, right? Like we sound like we have wrestling names too, so we're better. And so maybe one of them's like, yeah, but you couldn't cast out that demon, but I could. Well, and they start arguing about who's better. Who's better? Pride desires a high position. Humility desires a lowly position. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What an interesting thought that Jesus is there telling them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be delivered over, and then they start talking about how great they are. There's a disconnect sometimes with followers of Christ and the character of Christ because the character of Christ is one of humility and sacrifice, and sometimes the followers of Christ, well, we don't really like that part. So what I want to do is I want to be the best at being the follower of Christ. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This word servant there is the word diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon. It means one who executes the commands of another or a waiter or one who serves food or drink. This word Jesus chooses to define and express the nature in which disciples of all followers of Christ should conduct themselves in the body. We are to serve the church by the example and instruction given by Christ himself. It's not just the title that is given to deacons. It's the call of all followers of Christ to be servants, to humble ourselves, to serve those who are around us. Jesus is explaining to his disciples that displaying a servant action isn't enough. You must also display a servant attitude. As you come into the body of Christ, your attitude matters. As you come into the body of Christ, the way you seek to serve others matters. It's not just the actions that we do. It's the attitude that goes along with it. You see, a wrong attitude leads to a motivation for serving that isn't always a Christ-centered motive. Sometimes we serve out of compassion. And the reason I can say that is because there are people who serve uh, out of compassion for different things. I mean, maybe they serve at, you know, uh, somewhere that has nothing to do with the church, but they're, they're compassionate about it. They're sacrificing their time and their energy and their money. I mean, they might be doing things that look good, but Christ isn't the motivation. It's compassion. Well, I'm really compassionate about that. I really feel like we should do that. What about guilt? I'm just going to be honest with you. When it comes to serving in the church, the vast majority of times that we serve is because of guilt. Well, I better, I better do it. Otherwise, I'll feel guilty. And you know what? Guilt... Guilt is a very strong motivator to serve, but it doesn't last very long because that leads to burnout. Sometimes force. Sometimes we serve others because we are forced to serve others. Anybody ever work in a restaurant business? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been forced to wait tables on someone else that's just being a, I can't say that word, being a not friendly to you, right? Like you're just not friendly. And you're trying to think like, well, okay, let me fill up your sweet tea for you. Let me get you some more of this. And they're just being demanding and snapping their fingers at you. You're serving that person because you're forced to by your employer at that point. Sometimes we do it out of force. And sometimes we serve out of selfish positioning pride. Sometimes we serve because it will look good for us later. You know, if I do this right now, it's going to pay off later on. You ever said that? Just me? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I'm like, you know, I'm going to do this because later on it's going to come back to be a reward. These are 
These are motivating factors for being a servant. But they're not Christ-centered motivations. He wants to develop in us an attitude that leads to action that is based on who Christ is, that he is living in and through us. Because he had compassion, but that wasn't the motivating factor. He, wasn't guilt, he didn't feel guilty or forced. He wasn't trying to get a different position. Christ served us out of who he is. A gospel humility leads to a life that is purely motivated to live out a Christ-like service in both action and attitude. Verse 36, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus takes this time to do an object lesson. So he takes a kid. I thought about doing this, but it'd be kind of weird. Takes a kid, sets him up in front of everybody. And he's like, look, this, this is the object lesson. Now, in those days, kids were not little gods, okay? They were not little gods. They, they actually, you know, were kind of just running around and trying to get food and get scraps and trying to survive. Uh, the, the death rate for infants was high back in those days. Nowadays, we, you know, we elevate kids and we let them dictate our calendars and we do all those things, uh, you know, they're, they're little gods. And, and kids make horrible gods, by the way, because when you think the world, when they think the world revolves around them and they grow up and become an adult, and then they realize that the world doesn't revolve around them, they're called millennials. So, hey, come on, that was funny. All right, no, that was, my wife told me that joke. She didn't, she didn't. No, you see, he takes this object lesson to teach us humility. Humility in action and attitude treats those who have no standing in this world, children, victims, the mentally impaired, the physically disabled, the aged, those caught in slavery, the abused, the abandoned, the homeless, the orphan, the widow, those who feel discriminated against as better than yourself. You, you want to know what it looks like? Gospel humility? Treating those as better than yourself. And where do we miss that? We miss that, don't we? James, the half-brother Jesus, would say in 127, a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Gospel humility, a gospel-centered life, leads to a gospel-centered service. If you're walking in grace, it's leading you towards humble service. If you are walking in the presence and the attitude of Christ, you will be led towards loving and serving those around you. So finally, Jesus encourages biblical hum humility through gospel unity. Let's keep reading there. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is talking, and John, and John makes this comment that reveals an attitude of religious pridefulness. So Jesus is talking, he's, he's taught them that he must suffer and die, and he's now calling them out on their pride. And so pride creates this exclusivity 
And the example of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and then the conviction of Jesus leads us to repent of the pride and even religious pride in our life. That's exactly what happens with John. John reaches a moment of conviction where he says, hey, um, we were telling these other people that they can't do things because they're not part of the twelve. And he's already commissioned the 72 and sent them out and told them, hey, all authority, let's go. And he's like, hey, guys, guys, you're not better in the, in the kingdom. You're, you're, not, you're not better in the kingdom. God purposefully uses diversity and unity to further the kingdom of God. And sometimes we forget that because, well, they're not doing it the way we do it. Well, they're not dressing the way we dress. Or they're not acting the way we act. They're, they're not meeting the way that we meet. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you, right now is a really good time to start pointing fingers. The, the goal is diversity and unity furthers the kingdom of God. And we need to be people unified in the mission of God. Gospel unity is only possible through gospel humility. You see, if we have a gospel community that is not practicing gospel humility and repentance of pride, you'll cease to have a gospel unity. If there's a church that ceases to be unified in its goal and its mission of Christ, then you probably have a church that is not practicing gospel humility. They probably haven't reached the point where John is of having conviction, of saying, oh, I think I need to bring up something. I think I need to confess something. I think there's been some pride in my life, even, even if it was religious pride. See, God wants to further the kingdom of God through humble servants of God. See, unity within the gospel community is only achieved through individual humility. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons each week.